she had got the cancer. You have made my life so wonderful. Take that with you too, okay? I know that you love me. Your mother can't be with you anymore. I can't believe it. It's been a decade since you've been gone. Mama, I miss you. I miss sitting with you in the front yard. Still figuring out how to keep living without you. Welcome to episode nine of Hello, My Mom is Dead. I'm your host, Molly McGlynn, and I'm a filmmaker living in Los Angeles. I apologize for the irregularity of the release schedule, but things have really ramped up with my film Fitting In that's coming out soon. I'm headed to France tomorrow for our European premiere and then Toronto, and then I'll be in Halifax and Sudbury, Ontario and Calgary and Vancouver. So lots of exciting things coming up. You can follow my personal account for updates on the film. And I wanted to say that if you hear some scurrying about in the background, that's kittens Thelma and Louise just wreaking havoc, wrecking havoc. Who knows? They are creating havoc in the background. So I apologize in advance. Up until this point, I have adored all of my guests, but this one really is a standout and a must listen in my humble opinion. Today, my guest is Sean Saifa Wall. I came across Saifa in the incredible Focus Features documentary called Everybody that follows the lives of three intersex advocates, Alicia Weigel, River Gallo, and Saifa. If you don't know much about intersex or you have questions, I highly encourage you watch this film. I'm going to link it in the show notes. It is just an incredible film, and Saifa mentions in it that he lost his mom, and I knew immediately I had to reach out. I was really grateful that Saifa shared his time with me. He is so accomplished and incredible. I, to be honest, felt a little bit intimidated interviewing him, but once we started our chat, I immediately felt like... He was a fast friend, and I just felt a kindred connection here. So I hope you hear that in the episode. Saifa's bio is so impressive, I will try to hit some points here. Saifa was born and raised in the Bronx and attended Williams College and has lived and worked in New York City, the Bay Area, and Atlanta. Currently, he is a Marie Curie Fellow at the University of Huddersfield in England, examining the erasure of intersex people from social policy in Ireland and England. Saifa is committed to racial equity and a radical vision of bodily autonomy for people with intersex variations. He made history by confronting the surgeon on ABC News Nightline, who performed his gonadectomy at the age of 13. Saifa is also the co-founder of the Intersex Justice Project, has written features for just a plethora of outlets, including Scientific American, NBC, The Guardian, The Huffington Post, and has an incredible TEDx talk called 36 Revolutions of Change, which, again, if you have questions about intersex identity and want to know more, I highly recommend you check this out. I will link that in the show notes. 
Saifa is also the former board president of Interact, Advocates for Intersex Youth, and is a former advisor to the Estrella Intersex Fund for Human Rights. Above all else, Saifa is determined to end harmful and invasive genital surgery on intersex children and advocating for affirming health care for all people with intersex variations. In addition to his work and activism, he is a loving dad to his dog, Justice, who I met on the call and is frankly adorable. And he's currently working on a documentary about his father's incarceration entitled Letters to an Unborn Son. This conversation is so special to me, and I'm not going to say much more. You just got to listen. With that, here's our conversation. Welcome, Saifa. I am truly so excited to speak to you. You are one of the most accomplished people I've spoken to thus far, and I'm slightly intimidated based on uh, how much you've done in your life. But we had a little chat prior to pressing record, and we've established that I look very similar to your friend Bunny. You speak like my friend Richard, so it feels very natural. Welcome. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for the invitation. <laughs> Where are we speaking to you today? Where are you? Ooh, I'm located in sunny Manchester, England, and I say that tongue-in-cheek because it's always raining here. <laughs> How long have you been in England? I moved here in October 2020 during the pandemic. Fun. Um, so, oh yeah, just, ooh, a fresh kind <laughs> of hell. Do not recommend, you know? <laughs> yeah. 10 out of 10, do not recommend. Do not recommend. <laughs> Can you tell me a little bit about what brings you to the UK? Yeah, wow. It's just, I was living in Atlanta and, you know, I've been wanting to move for some time, but, you know, I think like many people during the pandemic, I was just like at home, just thinking with myself. I wasn't traveling as my therapist said, she was like, you always find something outside of Atlanta, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. And so there was this fellowship opportunity. So I'm a Marie Curie fellow. So the European Commission funds the Marie Curie fellowships and my now supervisor and a group of academics sort of put in a bid for a cohort of 10 researchers who would look at different aspects of intersex rights and experiences. And so I applied for one of those fellowships um, and it's here in England in a space at the University of Huddersfield. So I'm now I'm in my third year of like writing up my dissertation and my project is looking at how people with intersex variations have been erased from social policy in Ireland and England. As an Irish person, I am very thrilled that you are uh, focusing on that for your dissertation. <laughs> we had a little chat about Ireland and colonization prior to recording. I won't put you through all of that, but Saifa is extremely knowledgeable, obviously, in this area. Dublin don't owe me nothing, you know? <laughs> Can you please really put that on it. a shirt? Yo, I will. <laughs> yeah, merch opportunity. I'd reached out to you after I saw Everybody, an amazing film on intersex lives and identities that 
Focus Features bought this year. It had a theatrical run. I believe it's now available on streaming. I was so blown away by it. You were someone I wanted to speak to. You speak about your relationship with your mother in the film. I'm going to get into all of that and ask you about your amazing mom, but we usually start off each episode learning a little bit about the mom we've lost. This time we're doing something a little different. Saifa has written up a little paragraph on his mother, and I'm going to read that and we will chat. Do you ready? Okay. Ethel Wall was my mother and most fierce protector. She was beautiful, smart, witty, a hopeless romantic, but cutting in her words. She was a wife turned widow, mentally ill, and a survivor. She was my first example of sharing what you have and being of service to others. She taught me that your word is your bond and to keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Some called her Ethel, but in the street, others called her Lisa. At times I felt the depth of her love and also the weight of her wrath. She taught me the complexity of love, that someone can be your staunch ally and harshest critic. I have looked for her and every woman that I have dated to encounter once again the heartbreak and disappointment that I have known all too well. In her death, I feel a divine mothering that is vast and holds all parts of me. So while I have wept and still grieve the memory of who she was, I embrace her power and holding on the other side of the veil. This is me having no words. That is so powerful. You have captured so so much in so little words. Um, I was really moved reading this. What was it like hearing me read it back to you? I think I just had more <clears throat> like body sensations, you know, like I think almost like that root. I don't know enough about sort of that practice, but you know, when I've heard people and from the little bit I understand about that root chakra, just I just felt like the 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 weight just kind of sit really heavy in that area. And I just felt like my feet felt like they were expanded like almost like I had tubs um for feet. Yeah, I, I think I just really I think my body just felt the weight of all those words. I wanted to ask you how how long ago it was when she passed. She passed January 10th, 2017. Yeah, I, man, wow. I think I, I'm, I'm almost at a loss for words and I, and I feel like a little weepy a little bit because I think, funny enough, like before the podcast today, I was like reflecting um, on that time. And I think it was probably, it was devastating and it was heartbreaking, but it was perhaps like the most profound experience of my life because there were a bunch of events that led to her being in the hospital. But when she was in the hospital, she couldn't even use the bathroom on her own. She had a dead, I said deadpan, a uh, bedpan. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and you know, I had to clean her, mm -hmm. right? So I saw all of her parts and I have never seen my mother's ass. I've never <laughs> seen her vagina. Yeah. And 
I was like, oh my God. Like I was literally cleaning her butt, you know, emptying her bedpan for definitely several times a day for a few days. Was she cognizant at that point? Oh, yes. She was very cognizant. She wanted me to clean it. (laughs) Okay. Okay. She felt most comfortable with you. Totally. And my other siblings would not touch it. They were like, oh, nah, let's wait for (laughs) Sean to come. (laughs) How did you get that job? (laughs) I don't know. It was by default, you know? And I was like, this is just such like, I think in that moment, I was like, man, if you live long enough, it just comes around. Just life has a funny way of just coming around in ways that are just so unexpected. I remember having the same thought. I think at one point, oh man, I I pushed this memory away, but towards the end of my mom's life, I think I was lifting her up, moving her somewhere. And the feeling of holding my mother in my arms, I had the same thought, this comes full circle. And the reversal of that parent-child dynamic is so profound and hard to put into words. Oh my God. It's it's literally mind-blowing. It's just, yeah, I just I just think there's just no words to describe it. Unless you have had someone in your life who has lost a parent. Can you tell me a little bit about your mom's life and her story as you know it to be prior to having you? So, you know, prior to this PhD program, I was gonna write my mom's memoir. Because I was, I think I just had so many memories that didn't belong to me. Hmm. And the only way I can explain it is that when I was in 12-step recovery, I had a recovery buddy and I would tell her, you know, we would do program calls with each other. And she said, you know, it sounds like the relationship with your mom sounded like emotional incest. And it fucking blew me away. Like, I I don't think I could even Hmm. understand the gravity of what that meant, you know? And it made me feel really uncomfortable and really gross. And it was also really true. All things can be true. You know? Yeah. I think in attempting to write my mom's memoir was a way of, like, releasing myself of all these memories, all these feelings that don't belong to me. Because prior to my mom getting married, sort of having me, you know, my mom was like a young Black woman who went from Wilmington, North Carolina to New York City by herself to meet her brother who was already living there. Within the first couple years, she was like raped and just end up having two children who are my two older sisters and like just was exposed to so much. Did she tell you about the rape or? Yeah. Yeah. She was, she was very open about everything. It sounds like. Oh yes. (laughs) (laughs) I knew a lot about my mom's sex life and I was a young person, you know, like being 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, like, Knowing about my mom's relationships with men, you know, her sort of like being my mom's confidant Mm -hmm. with information that was well beyond my years. And so I think on one hand, because of having 
to listen because I, I thought my mom's stories were interesting. But again, I, I shouldn't be knowing at 14 or 15 years old about the sex that she's having with my dad and how it feels. Right. Yeah, that that's too much. You know what I'm saying? So I think on one hand, it was a matter of sort of me being an adult, sort of like really in a metaphorical sense, really shielding and really protecting that 14-year-old girl who didn't have an option for the information that was told to her. And I think also being sort of, in a way, grateful for having to listen to my mom's pain, trauma, shortcomings, regrets, all these complex adult feelings and emotions that I think really gave me a capacity to really understand people's pain and the complexity of pain and the complexity of people's stories, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just like, it's a wild thing. You know, it's a real wild thing with relationships, with love, with being a child, being in a relationship with a parent. It's a wild, it's a wild thing. I think we learn so much about gender and relationships from our mothers. What did you learn about what it means to be a woman in the world? And what did you learn about being a man in the world or the role of men from her? That's an enormous question. Oh, it's so big. It's so big. Such a juicy question. Let's see what I can take on. (laughs) I just jump right in, you know? Yeah, love that. Love that. (laughs) Love that, Molly McGlynn. You know, I feel like the first thing that came to mind when you asked that question was sort of like being reminded of my mom's femininity and the performance of femininity and like how she embodied femininity, right? Yes. And I think my mom's gender performance was shaped by the fact that she was born in 1942, right? And like women did this and women were this. And I think what's wild, and I was thinking about this recently, about like how her and my dad, like my dad was really handsome and my mom was really beautiful. And the thing is, is it's like, I feel like when my mom met my dad, she was so blown away by by how handsome he was. And I was like, woman, you should have looked in his mouth because I have teeth issues to this day (laughs) because you didn't look in his mouth. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, she didn't do the full inspection. She didn't look under the hood. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) But what's wild is this like, I think my mom and my dad both were really sort of disappointed by their own parents. Their own parents who kind of like, we're like, I'm taking care of you. I'm putting food on the table, clothes on your back. And that's all I'm giving you. Mm-hmm. I'm not giving you, like, I'm not listening to you. I'm not, like, curious about your inner world. I'm just doing what parents should do, right? And I think it creates this emotional poverty in a way, you know? And so I feel like my mom's views of, like, what makes a man, what makes a woman were shaped by how she grew up. But I think there's also, like, her dad wasn't around. And so I think she longs for a a type of masculinity, right? She longed for a man's man, 
And she felt that women should be like this. And I think for her, I was a challenge because when she was pregnant with me, she thought I was a boy. Then it was a little bit of situation when I was born. And then I was assigned a girl. And then she was like, oh, I get to put you in dresses. And then you can be this woman. And then I was like, I don't like those dresses. And I actually want to wear these pants and do these things. And then I was like, I like girls. And it's just, I totally felt like I really disappointed my mom around who she envisioned me to be or who she wanted me to be, right? And I think as I've gotten older and as she sort of witnessed the trajectory of my life before she passed, I think she came away with a respect for who I was, right? But it really defied all of her gendered expectation of who she wanted me to be, who she thought I should be in the world. And I was just like, I'm just not having it because she really wanted me to be a woman. She was like, don't you want to be a woman? Don't you want to be sexy? Don't you want to be desired by men? And I was like, no, I don't. Hell no, that sounds terrible. (laughs) Just so I I know, but for listeners, we don't need to get into the whole thing because that's a different podcast, but you referenced the situation when you were born. Just quickly sum up to listeners who aren't familiar with your story. So, you know, I like to do a standard definition. So I was born with the intersex variation. There's at least 40 documented intersex variations. So intersex stands for sex characteristics, which we all have. Everyone has sex characteristics. We all have hormones. We all have chromosomes. We all have junk, genitals, and we all have reproductive organs. But people who have intersex variations, their bodies are considered atypical for what we assume male or female people should be. Um, And often people who are identified as intersex at birth are usually subject to medically invasive procedures to make their bodies align with one conventional gender or another. So I was born with one of those variations called androgenous sensitivity syndrome. So when I was first born, they were like, oh, we have a boy, question mark. Uh, okay, it's a girl. Yeah, scratch that. <laughs> Thank you for that beautiful and succinct definition. And I'm glad you provided that context. I'm not done with what you just said about your mother and forcing idealized versions of gender, especially as it pertains to women, onto you. And it sort of connects to a TED Talk that I watched that you gave in Grand Rapids, I believe. Oh, it was in Grand Rapids. I will link uh, the TED Talk if you'd like to listen to it, listeners. But you do mention that your mom taught you about bodily autonomy and integrity um, and mentioned she had three children born with AIS. So it's so interesting because I I get a sense of her complexity in how you speak about her because on one hand, it seems... Like she was just subject to certain versions of gender put on her by her life. Right, totally. And then you're brought into her life and it forces all of those to blow up. So I was really moved by you saying that you learned about autonomy from her. Yeah. So you both learned 
sort of the recipe to perform gender and autonomy, if that makes sense. Mm. I'm kind of working through that idea, but... Yeah, work through it. (laughs) Work through it, work, work. Can you mention what you learned about autonomy from her? Yeah, you know, it's... Man, I just feel like that TEDx talk was just so profound and that the the crowd did not understand me at all. They were just like, huh? They were like, this is not the format of a TEDx talk. You're supposed to talk to us about science stuff and you're talking (laughs) to us about feelings. What the (laughs) fuck, you know? You know, and it's wild because I got really emotional during that talk. Because my mom actually died. She died from pneumonia, but her body was really weakened from hyperthyroidism. And because of her untreated mental illness, she didn't get treatment for the hyperthyroidism, which actually hyperthyroidism, if it's not treated, it will wreck your body. And so my mom was a very voluptuous woman, right? Like even in her like 50s, 60s, like she was very voluptuous. But the hyperthyroidism, she thought it was cancer, but it was actually the hyperthyroidism that made her lose so much weight. Mm -hmm. She looked like a skeleton, right? And so when I went home, I was just like, I saw her and started crying because I was just like, mom, you're so thin, right? Mm -hmm. And she was just like, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm like, you're not fine. Don't lie to me, right? And she just would not tell me the truth of what was happening, right? And I was so mad and I knew something was going on. Like, I remember telling a really close friend of mine, I was like, I feel like there's something my mom isn't telling me, Mm -hmm. right? And so when I did that talk, like, I was just like, I'm turning 36 this year. And my mom was 36 when she had me, Mm -hmm. right? And I was just like, just like she raised me, I am now shepherding her into the twilight years of her life, right? And so I feel like my mom, because of her own relationship to gender and her body, like she was, she really embodied, like, I am beautiful. I am sexy. She told me something that was so nutty. She was just like, I, I think I'm the most beautiful woman in the world. And I was like, oh, <laughs> wow, ma'am. Okay. I love that confidence. I gotta say. <laughs> Ooh, love that for her. I was like, oh, Miss Wall, you are just so confident in yourself. Really love that. And, you know, I feel like, She just, she really just embodied, like, I, my body belongs to me. Like, I deserve to have pleasure. I deserve to, like, feel good. I deserve to have people want me and desire me. Like, I really feel like she really, like, this belongs to me. And so I feel like in terms of bodily autonomy, you know, how it played out in terms of my life was, like, in this moment when they, you know, cause they told my mom that, you know, my undescended testes were cancerous and she consented to surgery. But after I had was castrated, essentially, we went to see the surgeon for a consultation cause they were going to do a vaginoplasty to create a vagina 
And he was describing the procedure and it sounded horrendous. And I never forget, he was just like, you know, I'm going to shave the clitoris down and create a cavity inside of you. And I remember being 14 years old, sitting there listening to him as a 14-year-old girl. And I felt sick to my stomach. And my mom looked over at me and she was like, do you want to go through with this? And I was like, no. And that was the only thing that saved me from genital surgery. And so even as, you know, my mom was sort of going through the process, my mom knew that I had this small phallus slash large clitoris because it's all the same stuff. Mm -hmm. It's all the same tissues. And my mom, she never shamed me for it, right? She never was like, oh, your quote clit is too big. It needs to be cut down. She was like, it's your torpedo. She rem- I remember her telling me this as a kid. She was like, you have a torpedo. And I was like, I have a torpedo, you know? <laughs> Look at me. I know? love that. And so I just feel like those nuggets, right? Like she really, although she wanted me to be this beautiful feminine woman, she wanted me to be beautiful. She wanted me to be, you know, proud of my body, not to feel shame. Like I remember being a young person being, you know, whenever I would get naked, I would sort of cover parts of my body. She was like, no, no, don't cover it up. No. She, my mom, this was her favorite phrase. She was like, we're all girls here. We're all girls. We're all women here. I'm like, oh God. I'm really just blown away by what she gave to you with that embracing of yourself in totality. And I'm thinking about a woman born in the South in 1943. And where the hell did she learn this? Man, I just, I don't know. Like, I do not know. Because I feel like my Nana, her mom, was, you know, my my Nana started having kids when she was like 13 years old. I can't even imagine that. 13? A child having a child. She was literally a child. Literally. Like, seventh grade education. And so, now my Nana was a trip, too, when she was younger before she got saved, of course. By God, I'm presuming? Of course, by God. I'm like the right. aliens? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I wish. No, she, before she became a born-again Christian, Lord. But, yeah, I just feel like, I think part of that is this with my mom, that sort of confidence came, I think, from the streets, actually. You know, like, because when she, man, my mom has fucking stories. But basically, when she had my two oldest sisters, the baby daddy wasn't about nothing. She had these two children and she hooked up with another man. He wasn't about anything. And so she was like hustling. And I think what my mom said is that coming up from the South, she did not see herself as beautiful. Like being a black child, you know, where them white folks will call you nigger to your face. You see representations in film and media. Everything about black is ugly, is bubble lipped, is like totally unattractive. And my mom was gorgeous. My mom was beautiful, right? And so I think when she came to New York, which was this metropolitan 
you know, people started noticing her, right? And when she was working and then she started working in bail bonds, you know, she was just meeting all these hustlers, pimps, and, like, everyone was like, you are gorgeous. You are smoking. You're the hottest bail bond employee we have ever seen. (laughs) Listen, listen. And so I think it's just like she just got all this attention, right? And just men would just fall all over her. Like, I remember being a little kid walking down the street where her men would just literally lose their minds. My mom was gorgeous. My mom was beautiful. She was like my first example of like a, a beautiful, like feminine woman. She was astounding, you know? And I think she just had this confidence. It just gave her this really big head, actually. Just as this huge inflated ego. And she was like, I am the most beautiful woman in the world. <laughs> I love that. it. She owned it versus collapsing into herself because just sometimes experiencing the male gaze makes me just, I can't describe it except collapsing into myself. Of course. And sometimes it feels empowering and other times it doesn't. Right. But it seems like she was able to take everything that was coming at her and turn it into power, which is incredible that she then gave to you. And I'm thinking about your activism and how the foundation she laid for you kind of led to this activist life and how now you are changing people's lives. Oh, I mean, yeah. I think sometimes it's hard to see the sort of impact, right? Because I think when you do the work, it's hard to know, right? Like, I'm pretty sure you as a filmmaker, you don't know your impact because you're just doing the work, right? And then you meet someone and they're just like, wow, I saw your film, it moved me, right? Or it made me think about something. And I think for me, I've done many interviews. I've spoken at different places. But I think probably the most profound thing that keeps me doing this work is when I meet moms who have children who are not harmed that for me that's where the work comes home that's where my heart softens that is where i feel humbled by the creator by ancestors by the universe that's where i'm just like oh i'm living on purpose it gives it gives me goosebumps and i'm thinking like you are meant to be here. She was meant to be here. Your Nana was meant to be here. Like everything that brought you into the world to change it. Yeah, it's just, man, you know, it makes me think of like, I had a conversation. This is, you know, life is wild. Life really be life and out here. It is like, life is a wild place, you know? And then you die. And then it's just like, wow. And then someone is speaking of your memory and what you did, you know? But I remember before I moved to um, England, I had this, this is serendipitous. I I know this woman, her name is Zena Sharman, lovely, lovely person. And, you know, she wrote this book, The Care We Dream Of, right? And it talks about care and modeling care and how systems, how we should show up for each other and 
it's amazing. And she wrote another book called The Rad Remedy. We've never met in real life. She found me on the internet in 2014. And we've just had this bond over these years, you know? Maybe it was 2016. I don't remember. 2015. Somewhere between 2014 and 2016. And she uh, interviewed me for one of the chapters she was writing for her book. And I wept because I feel like feel like part of my work is really sort of like the healing that I do, the the force that I bring into the world actually heals myself and it heals the people who came before me in a spiritual karmic way, you know? And I just feel like my Nana, my mom, all the the women who came before me, who who have laid the the path for me to walk on. I think it's it's just no words to express the gratitude. Like I am deeply, deeply, deeply humbled by them that they survived, that they lived, that in their shortcomings and in who they were as very complex human beings who have witnessed their own longings unmet or their own desires sort of not met, Mm -hmm. that they gave me enough to live and to thrive and to love and to want love and to be in tune with my desires. And so it's just like, you know, I just give thanks. That was so beautiful. And it makes me think of the bittersweet nature of only understanding the magnitude of their life sometimes in hindsight, you know, even generationally, like when you're living your life, you're in the middle of writing the draft of the story. Come on, Molly. You can't see the film yet. Come on. (laughs) Sorry, I always had to bring it back to filmmaking. Very poignant. Do you think she was proud of herself and her life when she died? Man, like, I was there when my mom died. I was there when she took a last breath. You know, in the the night before she died, it was a weird night. Because, like, you know, I grew up in the Bronx, and I grew up in a two-bedroom, one-and-a-half-bath apartment on the concourse. And the way the apartment was laid out, my mom's bedroom was directly across from my childhood bedroom. And my childhood bedroom wasn't my bedroom. It was like, it housed so many children and grandchildren over the years, right? And my mom was in a nursing home. And so I have to give a little bit of the backstory. So my mom had hyperthyroidism, which weakened her body. She didn't know about the hyperthyroidism because she also had breast cancer. And the cancer had literally eaten through her skin, and she did not want to get her breasts removed. So she knew she had cancer for at least five years and didn't tell anybody. And so the hyperthyroidism actually made her really sick to the point where she literally was going to die. And she sent me, like, I had bought her an iPad, and she sent me this cryptic message, and I was like, oh something's wrong. And so I sent my sister who's mentally ill 
to the apartment. And I was like, you have to check on mom. You know, my mom was inside. She was screaming because she couldn't get to the door because she was so weak. And so my sister called the fire, the police, the fire department came, knocked down the door. Her bedroom smelled like urine. She literally had been in there for like four days, no water, just just paralyzed. And she didn't want to be taken to the hospital because she knew that she went to the hospital that people would know that she had cancer. So I found all this out and I was, you know, I couldn't leave at that moment. But I think within a couple of weeks, I was in New York and it was literally a fight to get her to the hospital. She didn't want to go to the hospital. And I was just like, I don't want you to die here. I'm not prepared for you to die here. So I get her to the hospital. They were like, your mom has cancer. It could be it spread to her lymph nodes. It just rocked me. I was just like, you know, this is stage four breast cancer. I was just like, my mom's going to die. I wasn't ready for this. I was just like, I it, it literally just shattered my fucking world. She was at Columbia Presbyterian. One of the doctors who was her oncologist came in and he was like, when was the last time you were in a hospital? And she was like, when I was pregnant with him in 1978. They actually needed to do surgery, but they were like, her body's too weak from the hyperthyroidism. And so they were like, we're going to, we're not going to do surgery right away, but we have to get her body strong enough. But we eventually have to remove this cancerous mass that's on her breast before we can do chemo or anything else. So she eventually got strong enough. They transferred her to a nursing home. and. You know, she didn't want to, she didn't want to have anybody chopping on her. And I remember one of the arguments that we had while she was in the hospital is that I was just like, why are you being so, I was so tired. I was fucking burnt out. I was tired. And I was like, God damn it. You know, like I'm fighting for you to live. And she was like, give me my autonomy. She was just like, you fight for these kids. You fight for these intersex kids so that they can have autonomy. Give me my autonomy. And I just couldn't let go. Like, I wanted her to live selfishly. Wow. You know, in a nursing home, the person in the bed next to her had the flu. Because the flu was going around that year. It ripped through the nursing home. And they were asking, trying to encourage the people in the nursing home to get a flu vaccine. My mom refused. So she got the flu. It turned into pneumonia. My mom refused to go to the hospital. So she had planned to die and she wanted to die at home, but she didn't tell me that. Mm -hmm. So I bring her home. This is January 9th. It was a weird night. It was the weirdest night. And it was weird because I usually sleep on in my bed and I slept on the couch. And I had a dream that there was, I was looking at my mom, but it was almost like a silhouette. And I was looking at her and there was this huge snake just wrapping around me and I just was suffocating me. And so I woke up from the dream and I go in and my mom is sitting up. And I was like, mom, why are you up? And she was like, you know, Sean, that cancer, I just can't get it out of my mind. And I, I remember giving her a kiss on her forehead. And I was like, mom, 
We're going to the oncologist tomorrow. It's going to be fine. And I closed the door and I went back to sleep. Next morning, I wake up and it's just like, my mom is just like, she's alert, but like she's moving in the bed and her breathing is so labored. You know, I called the nursing home because they were going to send a, a home attendant. And they were like, they're like, oh, this is not good. You have to call 911. Because it was just like, it was wild. She was dying, you know? And I get off the phone and I go back in. And, you know, my mom is like literally gasping. I was like almost like a fish out of water. She was like gasping. And I'm just standing over her in shock. And, you know, and she just looks at me and she's like, everything is okay. I go back out and I start freaking out because I'm like trying to call people. And I come back in the room because I hear the death rattle. And it's a sound that like, I will never forget in my whole life. And when I heard the death rattle, like my genitals got so hot. And I literally felt like my whole heart just drop. And she was gone. She was gone. She was gone. I just feel like it's almost like the the universe swallowed me up or like I let the universe out of me. I don't know which one it was. But, you know, I, I remember calling my sister and, you know, I was just like, mom's not breathing. And she was like, what do you mean? I was like, she can't fucking, she's, she's, I don't know, you know? And, and I called 911 and, you know, she was, she was gone. She was gone. She was gone. You know, they took her to the hospital and they were just literally working on a corpse for like 45 minutes. They, they tried, you know, mm-hmm. they, they brought her into this room because they were like, you know, there's some faint, very faint, very faint brain activity, but she's been dead for like the past hour and a half or two hours. You know, they brought her into a room so that we could be with her before they, you know, have to put her on ice, essentially. And, you know, I put my hand on her forehead and I was just sobbing, just sobbing. I felt like the heat, all the heat just left her body because they were pumping her heart so much. And it's just like when the heart stops, she ran cold. And, you know, I stepped out from the ER and I never felt the sun so bright. You know, like I never, you know, like the rays of the sun. Like, I've never felt the sun that warm. Um, And I was like, my mom is in the sun. You know, like, my mom is in the wind. Mm -hmm. She's everywhere. Mm -hmm. Saifa, I'm 
hanging on to every word you've said. I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to listen and hear you. She, she is everywhere. You know, it's like that letting go, you know, like that. Final, like letting go, you know, because it's like she's, she's free of like mm -hmm. this earth, you know, this earth that we hold on to so dear because it's the only thing that we know. Like she was brave enough to let go. And I feel like death isn't about. It's not about the people who are dead. It's about the people who are still living, you know? I feel like I've seen her and like, I feel like when she was still, her spirit was still in this realm. Like I would see her in my dreams a lot and I don't dream about her. She'll come to me every now and again, but. How do you feel her now? I mean, it's just when I'm at my lowest points, when I feel the most broken, when I feel the most alone, when I feel isolated, when I feel like I just am out here alone, there's always this something that reminds me that I'm not. And that's when I, I feel like her just so much more. You know, it's just like, she's this, I'm a somatic awareness practitioner. And in the centering practice that I do with people, I always reference ancestry and legacy. And in legacy, I always remind people that when we die, we join the pantheon of ancestors. It's almost like this you know, to use a 2000s term, the super highway of ancestors, <laughs> of spirits that we join, you know? And I feel like she she's there, you know? She's there. She's between her, my dad, my sister, my Nana. Like, they're just between different realms and they're just advocating for me and they're just doing, they're just part of this larger spiritual fiber this fabric that i can't even conceive of as a human being that's just so infinite and so deep and so wide and so i can't even imagine you know i love that and it's like a energy just exists in this body in this plane and that's what we know but the energy does not disappear it just in my opinion it just transforms yeah it's just and so i think for me it's just like there's not a day that doesn't go by that I don't think of her in her human form. But I know that, like, it's just like she's just everywhere. My dad is everywhere. My sister is everywhere. My nana. They're just in the leaves, in the trees, like, in this microphone, in this, in this conversation. It's just, yeah. You've got a really strong energy of protectors around you oh i am sometimes 
when I feel scared. It doesn't feel that way. And then I just always get, get these constant reminders that it's just like they're advocating for me. That's for me, it's just like, how do I live my life on purpose? That's that's when it becomes. It's not about fame. It's not about success. It's not about any of the shit. It's just like, how can I be of service? A thousand percent. That's what it's about. That is what it's about. Yeah. Being of service. And I've just recently met you, but truly your existence and your visibility in the world is changing people's lives. And you know that, but you probably don't know the magnitude of that. Oh, that is the service. Oh, that's what it is. You know, you just paying it forward until someone throws dirt on your casket or your ashes. Yeah, for (laughs) sure. I came across a list. uh, It was a link to an article on joy that you posted. Yeah. And I loved it so much. And I think I felt a little nervous starting a podcast on loss and grief because just, you know, it can be heavy. And I just wanted to talk to people so people can hear there is so much levity and humor between people who have lost loved ones in a way that like, just unless you've gone to that depth of loss, you just don't, you just don't get it. I loved the joy list and I just, this has been a beautiful sort of mind-blowing philosophical spiritual conversation with you that I'm going to think about for a long time. And I also wanted to ask you about joy and offer places to find joy for someone who may have lost their mom recently. Yeah, it makes me think of that phrase, um, joy comes in the morning. You know, I have a really complicated relationship to joy because I feel like, you know, especially who, because in these times, oh, don't we need some joy? You know, I'm like <laughs> digging at the bottom of the barrel. Where, give me a little morsel. <laughs> yeah, just give me some joy, please. And I, and I think like, what does it mean? What does it mean to have joy, to feel joy, to know joy when the world doesn't acknowledge you when the world doesn't acknowledge your pain when the world doesn't see your trauma like what is it what does it mean to feel joy right and so i feel like you know joy is in the little things for me joy is in like watching a documentary joy is in eating good food what kind of food Oh, I like it. The more decadent, the better. As I get older, I can't, you know, can't go hard like I used to. Yeah. But, you know, things that are just taste good. Like, like I had today, I went to this town called Hobbiton and I had bubble and squeak. I'm sorry, bubble and squeak. Bubble and squeak. Yes. (laughs) It's like potatoes with black pudding and it's like sweet potatoes and regular potatoes with black pudding. They're like kind of. It, not roasted, but they're like kind of like home fries in a way with greens and and I had egg. I had fried egg and it was yummy. I was like, oh, this is delicious. I feel like for me, the the ways that I embody joy are the ways these 
kind of nuggets of resilience that I grew up with. Because mm-hmm. I came from the most dysfunctional-ass family. It was nutty. My parents were nutty. My environment, the conditions were nutty. And if it was all horrible, I wouldn't be here today. Right? Yes. So there were nuggets of joy and resilience. So I think, like, for me, the joy is sort of like my dog. The joy is like, you know, tapping into those. I have a, I grew up with an appreciation for food, right? I think for me, like, the joy is finding those things in my youth that still stay with me today. Those pieces of joy, those nuggets of resilience that stayed with me despite the madness, despite the nuttiness that was happening around me. These were the the nuggets that survived, right? And the nuggets that were part of my family life were like eating good food, watching movies. Like me and my mom would watch movies for hours. My mom would make really delicious food. That was how we bonded, how we would talk, you know, laughter, joking, right? Like, you know, even though, oh, people can be real harsh in my family. The the laughter, you know, the jokes and the laughter was always at someone's expense. But it was this kind of, you know, this humor. And it's those little things that just were part of my baseline, like part of my foundation that really, that I harvest. That's like my joy harvest. And so I just feel like the more I get older, the more I realize that joy and pain coexist together, right? And in our joy, we find pain. In our in our pain, we find joy. They're not opposite ends of the spectrum. They all kind of exist. They can't, one can't exist without the other. Totally. There's a really great book by Susan Cain. She wrote a book called Introvert years ago that was kind of a really deep dive into introversion. But her latest book is called Bittersweet. And it's all about exactly what you just said. There's also, I think, I want to say Pablo Neruda. Anyways, there's a, a line in his poetry that's sort of like the greater our capacity for sorrow, the greater our capacity for joy. And that is something that I live by. Yes, those are facts. Okay, so along these lines, what is one song, if it's played at a wedding, you will dance no matter what kind of mood you're in? Oh, man. The first song that comes to mind, I don't think this is my song, but definitely the Thong song by Cisco. Of course. <laughs> that was my, you know, favorite karaoke song. I want to go to a wedding where the bride walks down the aisle to that. Oh, that would be <laughs> lit. That would be so lit. <laughs> okay, so Thong song, any others? Ooh. I feel like there's some songs by Thundercat. I can't mm-hmm. nail down which one. I guess, you know... If we're talking about walking down the aisle, conveniently, Thundercat has a song Walking, which is like definitely one of my faves. Yeah, gotta have Thundercat. But then you gotta have a, you know, some oldies but goodies. Mm-hmm. Like I grew up on Marvin Gaye. I love Marvin Gaye. Mm-hmm. Do you know Stevie Wonder's as? Yes. Yes. I think that's the song 
Like, if there's a heaven and you're waiting in line, that song is playing. Like, there is no day where that comes on and I'm not, like, transported into some other dimension. Totally. Totally. You know, Stevie Wonder living on purpose. Mm -hmm. Because I'm just like, I saw him in concert and I was just like, you are a genius because literally... Every song that you're performing is as exactly as it is on your albums. And you, sir, are the GOAT. <laughs> and we want that. I also saw Stevie Wonder live at the ACC in Toronto. I mean, he he kept going. It was hours long. He wouldn't get off standing on the piano. His handlers had to drag him down. You know, conversely, going to Lauren Hill does not show mm. up until one in the morning, is doing some weird rendition of that thing and you're just like we just want to hear lauren hill songs (laughs) yeah you know sister lauren you know just may she be blessed i wish her peace yeah she's she's gone through a lot but i you know the concert was not for me (laughs) yeah i had a similar experience with michelle and the gail cello Mm. like she was her bet her backup band fucking phenomenal but she was literally two hours late came high and, and then was like Played for like 20 minutes and then left. I was like, excuse me? <laughs> I was no. like, oh, wow. No, thank you. What is one movie, if you were on a desert island, you would take a copy of? Ooh. Oh, man. Oh. You know, I'm going to have to take all of my favorites by Steve McQueen. And I know it's cheap. Okay, but you can't take all of them. You can take one. The one that came to mind first was Shame by Steve McQueen. Uh, okay. Incredible film. However, that is such a happy movie to watch on loop on a desert island. I know, I know. Um, okay. But bless um, you. No, no, you it, it's totally fine. I, I I just am fascinated. I just love Steve McQueen. I just love Steve McQueen. Anything Steve McQueen puts his little grubby fingers on, I'm like, yes! Just yeah, give it to me. Yeah, no, it's an incredible film. Um, what is a guilty pleasure you have right now? This is interesting. So Justice Sheds. He he's a healthy shedder, this one. Justice is the dog, just for clarification. Yes, yes, yes. Justice is my lifelong companion, even though his life is probably gonna be shorter than mine. Never know. This life is wild. So he sheds a lot. So basically I have a vacuum. It's a pet vacuum. Which is a scam. It's, it's just a regular vacuum, but it has more suction, supposedly. So it has two attachments. One is a regular attachment, but then there's another one that's a smaller attachment that the suction power has a spinning brush, and the suction power is amazing. But it's not as like convenient as a larger attachment, which allows me to get more surface area, but doesn't pick up as well. So my guilty pleasure is to like, vacuum the stairs and I just keep going over it making sure I just try to get every piece of hair you know and it's just like and just is freaking out you know and you see you see the the dust going into the canister oh my god oh also so swiffering amazing. like mm. to look at the dirty swiffer pad afterwards mm. it's like yes oh god yeah yeah it's like you know sex is good but have you ever swiffered Ooh. <laughs> 
listen, listen, you know, ooh, that can be, ooh, it's just two different categories, but it's, there is definitely overlap, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Maybe the suffering can come before the sex, you know what I'm saying? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Or maybe after, I don't know, I didn't, you know, maybe two different categories, but it's just like, wow. Yeah, I think, I think before, to set the mood, you know? So foreplay, you know? (laughs) Floor play. (laughs) Hey, good one. Good one. (laughs) Okay, I will wrap us up here. I do not have words for how grateful I am that you came on this podcast. I know people are going to get so much out of this. If I could just ask you to someone who's lost their mom, let's say within the past year, what would you say to them? You know, just really allow yourself to break down, um, really allow yourself. I know there's stigma around mental illness, but really allow yourself to just lose your shit. Because I think there was a grief that I had felt, and I still feel, it just shifts, it just transforms over time. But in the first year, the first six months, oh, it's just at the surface. And you just have to be in it. You just have to be like, I am not okay. And that's just going to have to be what the fuck it is, you know? I wish I had that advice when I was 21. I needed that. I was out of my body for years, maybe more than a decade. And now now I am losing my shit. And I'm starting a podcast to record it. Love that. Love that. Saifa, that is a great note to wrap up on. Where can people find you to find your work? Well, people can, I'm mostly active on Instagram at Cypher Emerges. You know, I have a website, um, SeanCypher.com. And those are the places where I'm active, where people can find me. So hit me up. Okay. I'll, I'll link all of those in the show notes. Saifa, thank you. You're a legend. I mean, you know, Molly, thank you. Like, this is a conversation that I didn't that I didn't know I needed. So that means the you. world to me. Signing off. You're the best. <laughs> yeah, you're the best. Just a reminder that if you like the podcast, or frankly, even if you hate it, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This helps boost ratings and make sure that people can come across the podcast who may need it. As always, I really appreciate all of your support and would love to hear from you and what you think. And I'm sorry you're here, but glad that you are. Thanks, friends. Love you.